welcome to my new podcast, Twin Peaks Cinema. You will notice on the feed, of course, that there are some earlier episodes. These were placed on my Lost in the Movies podcast uh, over the past year, and then I rounded them up here as I'm beginning. But they're a little bit different. They cover Twin Peaks episode directors uh, who made feature films. So some of them are capsules, some of them are whole episodes, for example, on River's Edge by Tim Hunter, which bears so many similarities to Twin Peaks that I had to devote a full episode to it. But most of the episodes on this podcast will not be by people who worked on Twin Peaks. They'll be films that influenced it or were influenced by it, or sometimes, oftentimes, just have coincidental connections to it that I find interesting to explore. And you can find these all over the place in sci-fi films and noir films in comedies, in new films, and really old films. I'm trying to think. I don't think I've covered any silent films uh, for this series. I have a lot of episodes prepared ahead because I started this um, for patrons in 2019. I don't think I've done any silent ones yet, but I'm sure that will be coming as well. Animated films, blockbusters, small avant-garde films. There's really just Twin Peaks contains so much that you can go in so many directions with it. But we're starting with one of the most obvious titles as part of a three-month series, which is how I'm going to be grouping these together from now on. This is going to be a monthly podcast, so an episode each month and three months at a time with a theme. And the theme for the next three months, for the fall of 2021, is What's in a Name? These are films that actually lend names to, to major characters often in Twin Peaks. And uh, we start with that, but with all of these films, there's so much more to explore than just that. That's really just the springboard. So we're going to start with the most obvious one, Laura, since the name of the uh, character who was killed in Twin Peaks and fuels the whole mystery is Laura Palmer. And uh, Mark Frost, at least, has acknowledged that this is where that came from. So we start from there. We'll talk about that a little more in this episode. But really what's richer to dig into is the whole concept of romanticizing, mythologizing somebody who's dead and then getting another view of them. And so we'll we'll ponder over that idea and find little details along the way that are intriguing as well as uh, major plot points. So before we begin that, I just want to note, you can also follow my work on other podcasts. Lost in the Movies is the main one. That goes up uh, twice a month, but also Lost in Twin Peaks, which I just launched. That's an episode guide to the show Twin Peaks that is uh, free of spoilers, so it can be listened to by new viewers, but also veteran viewers, because I go really in-depth with that uh, into all different aspects. So each day I put up a podcast episode on a different aspect of it, whether it's the historical context around it, the plot points involving the various subplots, the stuff to do with Laura, the the mystery clues of that episode, uh, press coverage of the time, and so forth. Um, Right now, I'm in the middle of the first regular episode. I just finished the week of the pilot. And again, this, similar to this Twin Peaks Cinema podcast, is largely comprised of material that I originally recorded for patrons. So there's no falling behind on it. I just have to basically repackage it and put it there. So it's all there. It'll continue on that daily basis. And this will be monthly along with Left of the Movies, which is a film, a podcast looking at uh, political films and, uh, and sometimes maybe films that are not necessarily intentionally political but have something uh, political about them, uh, often from a left-wing standpoint, but sometimes looking at films that are more right-wing and kind of critiquing or exploring their ideas from a uh, left populist standpoint. 
So those are all different approaches I'm taking in the podcast form. Of course, there's also a bunch of stuff on my site, but I list uh, those activities at the outset of my Lost in the Movies podcast uh, every couple weeks. So I'll, I'll save that here. But the latest episode on Lost in the Movies is on Halloween, the 1978 horror film, and the uh, upcoming episode for uh, Lost, or sorry, Left of the Movies will be on the Battle of Chile great film about the Chilean revolution and then reaction and coup in the seventies documentary of that time with a lot of application to the present, I think, unfortunately. So all of that's in store for you, but right now we're going to focus on Laura and Twin Peaks. Every woman will feel that when it comes to men, Laura gets by with murder. Every man will feel that when it comes to murder, it couldn't involve a more enticing girl. Don't worry. I told you I'd bring in the killer today. Yeah, I was just going to make the arrest when you called. No, I can't tell you now. I'm not alone. You'll see when I come in. I knew that Laura was going to have to be one of the films I discussed as part of Twin Peaks cinema. There's a heavy noir influence on Twin Peaks in general, and a lot of direct references in terms of names and situations. And this is one of the prime examples, characters' names lifted directly from this film and inserted into Twin Peaks, but also a general situation uh, scenario in the first place that influenced the show and that plays out and actually led fans sometimes in the wrong direction with what to expect. So obviously it should go without saying, I'm going to have to discuss uh, spoilers for the film to discuss its similarities to Twin Peaks. Uh, This is a film with some very fascinating twists and turns that are among the ground that it shares the most with Twin Peaks, basically. So the story of the film is about Laura Hunt. She's a young woman rising in society, has a job in an advertising firm, but is taken under the wing of Waldo Lidecker, a columnist whom she approaches in a restaurant to share a campaign that she wants him to endorse. And he's very rude to her, and then he feels bad. Something about her sticks with him. So he goes to her office, apologizes, and says that he will indeed endorse the fountain pen that she wanted him to. And that launches her career and also their relationship where he starts bringing her out, sharing her with parties and and things like that and training her in various ways. And we don't see any of this in the very beginning of the film. This is revealed to us in a flashback because when the film starts, she's dead. And we're told by Waldo Leitecker, who's narrating the opening of the film, that she's died, that she's been murdered. Uh, Somebody greeted her at her doorway and opened up a you know shotgun in her face, basically. So this unrecognizable corpse was found, but of course identified by the clothing and the apartment that it was in and uh, taken off. And this detective McPherson, played by Dana Andrews, is uh, questioning all of the people involved. So that involves Clifton Webb as Waldo Lidecker, who follows him along and makes pithy, witty comments at every stop along the way. Great, great dialogue in this film. And then also Vincent Price, who is uh, another suspect. He was the fiancé of Laura. Charming, but superficial Southern gentleman who isn't all that he seems. So the detective is digging around in her apartment. He's captivated by her large portrait that's over her uh, mantel place and also by her diary and her letters. He's reading through everything. The Waldo character calls him out on this, says, ah, a detective fallen in love with a corpse, embarrasses him, and he falls asleep in a chair by the portrait, and then the whole movie changes because somebody enters the apartment, he looks up, and it's Laura herself. She hasn't died. She was gone for the weekend, and it turns out 
uh, a co-worker who was having an affair with her fiance was in the apartment and was shot. So there's all of this back and forth. The plot gets kind of complicated. A.D. Jameson, in a post called Schrodinger's Laura, talks about how uh, many people see the film and they can't remember afterwards how it ended, like years later. You know, they remember when they see it. Roger Ebert wrote about this, that he's seen it numerous times, but it takes him a moment to remember who the murderer is. And I myself experienced this. I, I wrote about it in a review when I called this my number one noir film and realized when I was revisiting it that I couldn't remember who actually did it, which is so funny because it's such a great movie, but and it has a, a pretty well-constructed plot, I, I think, but ultimately in the end, the point isn't really the whodunit. It's all of the ideas and emotions that it evokes around this character who is basically resurrected. That in itself is such a fascinating concept, this idea of this character who's already a martyr, but somehow is brought back into the story as a flesh and blood character involved with it. And that brings us back to Twin Peaks. And I think the way that this story relates most importantly is this idea of a character whose entire purpose is that they're dead, but who by the end of the story is now a living presence. And I think with Twin Peaks... That's hinted at throughout the show where you get deeper and deeper glimpses into Laura's life, but really it comes to fruition in the film Firewalk With Me, the prequel, where we actually get to see Laura alive. In that case, one of the rare cases where Twin Peaks is actually maybe less radical than the original 1944 film Laura, because in, in that film they actually in a sense, bring the character herself back into life to interact with the people who had been investigating her murder. Now, eventually, Twin Peaks arguably gets there as well, uh, and there are even hints of it in the show where Cooper sees her in his own dream. I just love the fact that in this film, the character is allowed to play a part in the mystery about her. It's just such a cool idea. So I want to go through some of the similarities between the film and the show and discuss those in turn as, as I took notes on them as they popped up in the film. The film starts with the narration of Waldo Lidecker, uh, which is ironic because the film ends up with him dead. And I guess I should mention that as we're talking about this film and the connections. The film does end with Waldo being identified as uh, the murderer and being shot as he storms at, at Laura trying to basically kill her again. He, he thought that he was shooting her when he shot the other woman who was in the apartment. This is interesting because when you start a film with a character's narration and they're looking back on it, it says something like, I'll never forget the day that Laura died. And of course, he's the one who's going to be dead at the end of the movie and she's going to be alive. So they're very cheekily subverting audience expectations there. And I think there's a bit of a reflection, too, of, of how Twin Peaks will do that, where we'll start in a certain place where we seem, you know, we wonder where it will go, but we have an idea of what sort of story it's telling with this murder mystery very methodically laid out in the small town. And who would think it would end up with this, like, time travel and spirits and the atomic bomb going off and setting loose this jean-jacketed figure in the world and this weird Judy creature and all of this other stuff that that comes to play into Twin Peaks that you wouldn't suspect from this beginning. So Laura doesn't quite go that far, but you do have a sense of a beginning setting up a more orderly story that's going to be subverted by the end. It's also interesting to see how season three carries out uh, both the Laura and the Vertigo story, which I'll be discussing. Uh, Vertigo is another Twin Peaks cinema film in a whole new way because you have Cooper stepping back into 1989 to actually rescue Laura on the eve of being killed. And this takes this idea that's in these films 
and extends it another step where, you know, Laura finds a realistic way to bring this character back in and have the detective save her from the fate that he couldn't save her from in the first place. And Twin Peaks makes that idea actually more literal in a way where he literally goes back to the night that she was murdered and tries to intervene. And that's interesting because people talked about the connection between Laura and Twin Peaks for years, for decades. And then to find a whole new way that it's connected to the new series, I think, is kind of exciting. And then also to see how it plays out with the Carrie stuff in the following episode in part 18. He's talking to this woman who he connects to the person who has died, but who has her own mind and her own plans and thoughts about things. She's got her own whole plot going on. There's a dead guy in her house. And you can see that in the interactions between McPherson and Laura Hunt when she comes back to her apartment. It's like this weird detective's there. And suddenly they have to be all professional in business, even though they're living in this the surreal moment where this dead person has come back for him and for her discovering that there's been a murder in her place, uh, you know, and that sh people think she was killed. So they're both experiencing this shock, but uh, they're coming at it from these different places, just as Carrie and Cooper are in that scene. The Waldo Lidecker character is interesting in that his name, Waldo, is taken for the bird and the last name Lidecker is taken for the veterinarian uh, in Twin Peaks, so the minor bird that witnessed Laura's death and, uh, and you know, that veterinarian. But who does he actually correspond to in Twin Peaks, if anyone? I think initially his character is the most like Jacoby. I should say initially in Laura and also initially in Twin Peaks. First of all, we have him asking the detective, oh, mind if I go with you? Murder is my favorite crime which is very similar to how Jacoby approaches Cooper and Harry in the pilot and is kind of totally cavalier about Laura dying. Oh, I, I, can I go along with you? I'd, I'd like to go to the, uh, to the autopsy. And they're looking like, no, that's really not appropriate. Weirded out that he even wants to go. And he's got this decadent lifestyle in, in a certain way. He doesn't have the hippie affectations that Jacoby has. Far from it. He's a very high-class esthete. But they have a similar apartness from the rest of human society in a way that makes them a little off-putting or curious to people. Also, I think, as we find out as the first few episodes go along, we have Jacoby going to Laura's grave in the cemetery and confessing to Cooper that he had ceased to care about his patients. He was her psychiatrist, but Laura reawakened something in him and made him want to be a better person. And Waldo says almost an identical thing about his Laura. She thought that he was this caring, compassionate person, and he wanted to become more like that, even though he's this egotistical maniac from the moment we see him uh, in the movie. Also, though, he's a little bit like Ben Horn. The affectations are there. Ben has this flowery way of speaking at times, and he's this very wealthy character who is nonetheless touched by this vivacious girl and becomes this weird mix of protector and, and lover. And in Laura, the film, it's even more ambiguous because Waldo is frequently read as being a gay character, uh, yet he's in some sense in love with Laura, even if it's just as a Pygmalion that he's created, an extension of his own egotism, or if there's just some tenderness there that he sees. He calls her the best part of him. He, in his relationship to Laura reminded me a little of Ben Horn, particularly as it went along. And in my uh, video essays for Journey Through Twin Peaks, where I talk about the whole series, I compare it to Laura at certain points. And one point I do that is right before the killer's reveal in Twin Peaks, when I look at Ben Horn as a possible 
a suspect. And I see how easily it could have played out that way and how it would have felt maybe a little obvious, but also kind of right. And it would have played back into the Laura influence where you have this powerful older man in the community taking Laura, their own various Lauras, and trying to control them and killing them out of some protective concern. Now, ultimately, that is the dynamic that plays out, but it's with Leland, Laura's father, and he ends up being the Waldo character in Twin Peaks. And I I think there are some strong similarities there because, again, you have this very possessive attitude toward, in in this case, his own daughter, which makes explicit the weird paternalistic attitude that Waldo takes towards Laura in the film, where he's like her mentor, and yet he also is extremely jealous of every young man that she takes an interest in and tries to ruin them. He writes a column about one of them. He tries to set up uh, Shelby, the the Vincent Price character, as as a murderer. You see this vindictiveness that's unbecoming of a of a mentor figure, a paternal figure who's supposed to help this character along, but then let them live their own life and have this relationship with other men. And and so with Leland, you have that father character way overstepping his role, but in a way that reflects how that sometimes does play out in society. This oh, this overprotective father theme where it's like, oh, you know, anybody who's interested in you, I'll take care of them or whatever, taken to its extreme in that case. Now, another way that Twin Peaks and Laura are similar beyond just the character of Laura is the fact that everyone seems to be having affairs and double-crossing each other, particularly with the aunt character and the Judith Anderson character is the aunt of Laura. So I guess she has a wealthy aunt, even though uh, she seems like a little bit of an outsider to society that Waldo has to train. So that's interesting contradiction there. And her aunt is in love with the Vincent Price character, with Shelby, and actually even says at one point that she would consider murdering Laura, you know, she's like, well, the thought crossed my mind, basically. She reminds me quite a bit of Catherine, that sort of imperious, wealthy older woman kind of stereotype that played out in a lot of soaps at the time of Twin Peaks as well. Interestingly, the character who paints Laura's portrait is called, uh, is named Jacoby, Jacoby as they call him. That seems like it probably is not a coincidence. They say Jacoby was in love with her when he painted the portrait. So, and, and later we see him kind of leaving her apartment after a rendezvous, and Waldo decides to destroy him and his artistic style in, in print so that Laura will drop him, and it works. There are also reporters everywhere in this film, at least initially. After a while, they disappear, and it becomes more of a chamber piece. But we see reporters out there with the bulbs. This was supposed to be a big part of the pilot that Mark Frost wrote in, of this murder scandalizing the area and journalists descending on the town, and it uh, probably just didn't fit in with the budget, so they left it out. There are objects all over the film that are charged with a certain significance, keys, clocks, a uh, cigarette case, just these tokens that are used in a way that I think is quite common in Twin Peaks as well. The fascinating, I mean, certainly with the camera work, Lynch closing in on various objects and investing them with this larger significance. The structure of the film is not just similar to the overall trajectory of Twin Peaks to Firewalk With Me, but Firewalk With Me itself, where you have a detective's fruitless search and then followed by the woman's own story. Now, in this case, again, it's different because she's actually interacting with the detective. It's not two totally separate structures. But the point of view does uh, shift somewhat, too, as the film goes on, because we begin thinking this is Waldo's story, and then finding it's more McPherson's, and then even Laura's herself to a certain extent. 
as a character, Laura has a signature musical theme. It was actually quite popular at the time and became a hit that people enjoyed on the radio, I think. And I don't know, 45s were common at the time. And she also has a, a portrait, a picture portrait, just like Laura does, in her case, a photograph, in uh, Laura Hunt's case, a painting. So that's another interesting aspect where these characters are mythologized on screen, in the story, in the style, everything, even you know, within the world that they live in, they've taken on this larger-than-life aura. I love a line that Waldo says about Shelby where he says, next you'll produce photographic evidence of his dreams, which calls to mind, you know, the Twin Peaks uh, dreaming theme, which I guess we should probably get into a little bit here. This notion of Laura as a dream. There's a rumor that's going around, well, I think going around like this is some new thing. There's always been a urban legend that Laura was supposed to end with the reveal that it was all a dream. I haven't found any evidence of that. In fact, I found some extensive writing about what the actual alternate ending to the film was, which was that Laura tries to save Waldo, like she goes and tells him that the detective is on to him and then he tries to kill her anyways. That whole story, the fact that it even exists in the detail of the studio chief screening it and talking to the director about changing it is in itself evidence that there was no other third alternate ending and so it wasn't intended to be a dream. Nonetheless, people like to theorize about that the fact that the character falls asleep before Laura arrives and the whole story is reset is fascinating to consider. There's all kinds of theories like that about Twin Peaks. Uh, people feel like maybe when Cooper is shot, the whole thing goes into a dream. Maybe the entire thing before it even begins is a dream. People like to break it down in these different ways. And whose dream is it? Is it Cooper's dream? Is it Laura's dream? And so forth. I actually think that question is really interesting to consider in terms of Laura, the film, because the obvious interpretation, if you're going to go that route, as well as the detective's dream. He's dreaming, fantasizing about this beautiful young woman who's dead, whose case he's solving, and who is now beyond the, the realm, basically, uh, coming back into his life. And he gets to play this tough guy role, too, which is almost part of the fantasy, where it's like, oh, she's back, but he's not swooning over her. He's telling her, you know, I don't know, you might be up to something, you stay here, and this and that. And it lets him play out this role even more. And, and that's, there's definitely something there. But there's also the idea of, is this Waldo's dream at some point? Where does his dream switch places with the Dana Ashbrook character's dream as a Rashomon effect? I did read another thing that I think was also maybe somewhat apocryphal because I couldn't find confirmation of it, that someone wanted to add uh, Laura having her own version of the story at the end, which is different from both of the other two. I think what that draws from is there was a scene added when they were tossing uh, or juggling around the idea of different endings for the film. They were going to have a scene where Laura tells the tells McPherson, oh, no, 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 what Waldo told you about our first meeting with the pen and all of that, uh, me trying to get his endorsement in the restaurant, the meet cute, that's all untrue. He met me at a, a night court where I was being charged with vagrancy and he intervened to help me out because I just lost my apartment. And it's a much more down-to-earth. The one that Waldo tells is much more befitting of a, of a columnist who is uh, discovering all these little stories and wants to share them, making up his own version of their meeting. Now, of course, that was never... I don't think it was shot, and it certainly isn't included in the finished film, so we have no reason to believe that his version is untrue. But it is interesting to consider this question of like unreliable narrators and almost a battle between the dreams, where in the end... Waldo is defeated and McPherson gets his fantasy to play out and we close in on the broken clock like a little remnant of that initial dreamer left in the story. Other aspects of the film connected to Twin Peaks, uh, there's a private diary 
that uh, he reads and that Laura finds out that he read and said, I never meant anyone to read these things. And of course, with Twin Peaks, not only was there a diary in the show, but the they wrote one, Jennifer Lynch, David's daughter, wrote a whole secret diary of Laura Palmer that was published and, you know, searched for clues by fans. I think also another character Waldo is similar to, I forgot to mention before, talking about Jacoby and Ben, is also Harold Smith, somebody who's very literary and this private person who, well, I mean, he's a very public person in, in terms of the events and stuff that he goes out to, but obviously keeps his own counsel and is apart from the world uh, in a way that is a little bit reminiscent of Harold, I think. We have a house in the country, sort of like the cabin uh, where Laura goes off to, and she talks about walking walking for hours in the woods. At the time that Twin Peaks came out in 1990, there were a lot of theories that Maddie and Laura had secretly switched places, that the dead person was actually Maddie, Laura's cousin, since they're both played by Cheryl Lee. And uh, that was inspired at least partly by this film, the fact that you have the character who is seemingly dead coming back, and they're still alive, and actually someone else was killed in their place. And maybe there was confusion about the killer thinking it was them, and they really you know, uh, ran with this idea at the time, people theorizing on the early version of the internet and in newspaper columns and things like that. A couple other observations about this that come uh, not so much from me watching it, but other people. There's been so much written, obviously, about Laura and Twin Peaks being connected, but often just noting the names and uh, some of the more, you know, immediate, obvious connections between the two works. Uh, so I wanted to dig a little deeper with this, but I also looked up some of the other writing and found some interesting stuff that I hadn't caught. For one, on the on the blog, Boston Hassel, uh, they point out, and others have pointed this out as well, that at one point someone asks, I think Laura asks McPherson to call the police, and he says, I am the police, much like Cooper saying, I am the FBI. So there's another season three connection. And Maria Gates wrote a piece on her site about Laura saying that she saw connections between Cooper as a detective and the Dana Andrews performance of McPherson in Laura, saying that he was a very modern detective, uh, that uh, his Dana Andrews's daughter, the actor's daughter, introduced a film at a, uh, this film at a screening and said that uh, her father, this was one of her father's favorite roles, and that it was an unusual portrayal of this type type of detective, uh, maybe in the fact that he's a little more canny in some ways. Certainly Waldo accepts him as just being this big lug, basically, but he's actually pretty clever and manipulative in certain ways that, that are interesting to watch. I wrote about that in a comment. I said, interesting point about McPherson. The Laura links are obvious, but I had never really thought about the detectives the same way, perhaps because Andrews plays a character more aloof than Cooper. But yes, their canny perceptions, bemusement at the strange characters surrounding them, and cool handle on the whole situation as well as the unusual link they have with the victim, handled differently in the two works, of course, draw them together. So tell me what you think about connections between Laura and Twin Peaks. I feel like even in 20 minutes or so, we've only scratched the surface. And I'd love to know if there's anything I missed or that you kind of have an inclination about that you haven't heard other people talk about. Let me know. Let the discussion continue on the two Lauras. Here's some feedback I received uh, after originally releasing this podcast to patrons uh, with further thoughts and connections on Laura. There's so much to dig into that I didn't even get into all of it. So here are some more ideas. In response to my coverage of Laura, Jake says, Re, Preminger's Laura, as you say, it's a very rich subject. Isn't it interesting that both Laura and Sunset Boulevard, which looms even larger as an intertext in season three, are narrated by dead men? 
I agree that Jacoby initially is a close match for Waldo. Curiously, you can see a more benign version of the ambiguous Waldo, Lara, and mentor-pupil relationship taking shape between Cole and Tammy in Season 3, though it's Albert who inherits Waldo's sharp tongue. Speaking of the bric-a-brac in the film, the opening tracking shot starts on an oriental statuette, or ambiguously gendered to my eyes, which is set in an alcove so we could almost be looking at its reflection in a mirror, setting the tone for what follows in a way that reminds me a bit of Josie looking in the mirror at the start of the Peaks pilot. Joan Chen, in retrospect, described Josie as a beautiful Ming vase. Commentators on both Preminger and Lynch have pointed out that Laura, as a name for the unattainable beloved, goes back to Petrarch in the 14th century, i.e. to the dawn of the Western tradition of the love lyric. This is relevant, I think, at least as a clue to the logic that ultimately sees Laura idealized, beyond all reason, as the one. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this, stay tuned for the next monthly episode. These will usually go up second week of each month, so the next one will be second week of October. I'll play a a clip slash trailer from that uh, momentarily. Before I do, just wanted to encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe if you enjoy this series. And also, uh, if you become a patron for a dollar a month, you'll now have access to the past two and a half years of Twin Peaks cinema content. So monthly episodes on there, uh, tons and tons of material, some of which I'll be releasing publicly over the next year, much of which I won't necessarily get to um, in that time, or, or especially if I start putting up new episodes here, it may go further into the archive. So there's really so much to explore in addition to uh, Twin Peaks conversations for the $5 a month tier, uh, Twin Peaks, uh, Lost in Twin Peaks, the full archive of that and so forth. So a lot of great stuff to find there, hours and hours of podcast material. Thank you for listening, and here is a taste of what's coming as the next What's in a Name film for Twin Peaks Cinema. The story of a love so powerful it broke down all barriers between past and present, between life and death, between the golden girl in the dark tower and the tawdry redhead that he tried to remake in her image. Vertigo, a feeling of dizziness, a swimming in the head, Figuratively, a state in which all things seem to be engulfed in a whirlpool of terror, as created by Alfred Hitchcock. If I let you change me, will that do it? If I do what you tell me, will you love me?